When I was a kid, one of the most exciting times of anticipation um, was when my dad was gone and we were waiting for him to come home. We, we loved our dad. We had a good relationship with him. And so it was always exciting when he was gone. Um, when is he going to get home? Sometimes he was gone for work or something like that. And we were just excited to see him. Or other times he was gone hunting and we wanted to see if he killed anything, right? Like that was the big question. Did dad get a deer, right? And, um, and so there were always times when he was gone and we were excited and wanted him home. But every once in a while, um, there were times when I didn't miss him. Um, I didn't want him to come home because earlier that day I heard the words from my mother, wait until your dad gets home. <laughs> Can anyone relate to that a little bit? Okay. Um, it was those days that maybe I mouthed off to my mom or made a mudslide in the backyard or broke a wooden spoon over my sister's back. Sorry, Jess. Uh, she's not here today, but that happened, um, unfortunately. So on those days, I wasn't looking forward to dad to come home, right? Like at all. Um, I wish there was a place to hide, okay? Because I knew that when dad returned and issued his judgment, that I would be found guilty. And today we have the privilege of looking at the Christian's blessed hope, the glorious return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that he'll return visibly and personally, and he'll rescue his people from this sin-cursed, broken world, and he will destroy evil forever. And that is a great encouragement to us, at least it should be. However, um, it's not an encouragement if you're not on the right side. Um, and so while this message is, yes, meant to be an encouragement, as I read this passage this past week, I realized that um, this isn't so much the comforting part of Jesus' return. There's a lot of texts that talk about that. This text is more like the judgment part of Jesus' return, like not one of the texts that I would just pick um, by myself. But since we're walking through a book, this is kind of, you kind of have to come across this. Um, and so, yes, it ought to be an encouragement for us as Christians that we won't face the wrath, we won't face judgment because of Jesus. Um, but if you're listening today, and maybe you're listening on live stream, or you're here and you've never had a time where you've trusted in Jesus, um, then you're not on the right side. And like as me as a child, knowing I was guilty, um, I hope today that you'll realize you're guilty, but there is a way of escape. Um, there wasn't for me as a child with my dad, but today there is, um, and that's the gospel. But before we jump in to this specific passage, I want to fill you in on where we've been so far. So we're working through a survey of Revelation, um, and we've argued from the beginning that John didn't just write this book to give you this detailed map of the future. Instead, he wrote this book to radically transform your life in the present. And I told you that apocalyptic literature, which is what Revelation is, is it's tracks for hard times. It's, it's, it's a path to walk on when life is difficult, when life doesn't make sense. And here's a great theme from one of my study Bibles. It says, Revelation unveils the unseen spiritual war in which the church is engaged. The cosmic conflict between God and his Christ on the one hand and Satan and his evil allies on the other. It dramatically affirms the certainty of Christ's triumph in the new heaven and earth, and it both warns and fortifies the church to endure suffering and stay pure in this present evil age. Um, so that was pretty lengthy, but here's a, a simple summary that I've been using over and over throughout the series. Um, it's simply this, God wins, right? Like what's Revelation all about? It's the fact that God wins. And what an encouragement for us, um, especially after a crazy year. Now, I know we've covered a lot um, in just a short amount of time. I've, I've done eight sermons so far on this, and we've covered a lot. And I came across this outline um, that I thought would help you 
kind of give you some hooks to hang some of this stuff on. Um, Jim Hamilton um, gave this in one of his commentaries. But in 1 through 3, we saw Jesus and the letters. Um, those are the seven letters to the churches. Then in 4 through 16, we saw the throne. And then from that throne came a series of judgments. If you remember, there were seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. And then 17 through 22, we get the harlot, the king, and the bride. Okay, And so we are in that third section. And, and the last time we were together, which it seems like a long time ago now, um, was in chapter 18, where we saw the judgment of Babylon, which is called the harlot. Um, and it's at the end of 18, in the beginning of 19, we saw rejoicing in heaven. And so what I want to do is I want to just briefly overview the contents of 19 and 20. And then we're going to kind of park at the end of 19 and look at the return of Christ. And so in 19, 6 through 10, um, which is before the return, we see um, the marriage supper of the Lamb in Scripture um, true believers, those who have repented and believed the gospel, um, they are known as the bride of Christ. Okay, And, and there's this great supper coming um, for those in his bride. And it's a celebratory feast that's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's in heaven one day. And I want you to hear this description from Tom Schreiner. He says, every joy on this earth, every wedding and every feast points us to the most sublime wedding, the most exquisite feast. We are to prepare ourselves by following Jesus so that we can enjoy this coming wedding feast. Now listen to this. Then our hearts will sing as they never have before. And we will laugh and rejoice as never before. It will be a laughter and joy unstained by any sin or sorrow or worry. Death will be a distant memory and we will rejoice forever. Isn't that awesome? I don't know if you've ever been part of like just like a sublime moment with family. Um, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas and you're all gathered around the table and you're, and you're eating. And, and, and I know some of you haven't experienced that and I, and I don't want to rub that in your face, but just know as a child of God, you're going to experience that. You're part of a family and it's awesome. Um, but I remember those moments where it just seemed like this is perfect. This is awesome. It's a feast and we're laughing and we're enjoying one another, but it always ended, right? But one day in heaven, it's not going to end. The joy is only going to get greater and greater and greater as we spend time gazing on the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and being with his people and being on the new earth. And, and just so you know, if, if, if your picture of eternity is floating in heaven with clouds, we're going to see next week. It's not that. Um, there's a new earth that we're going to live on and it's going to be incredible. And that's why I'm saying come back next week because uh, it's so awesome um, to look at that. But I love that, that line, death will be a distant memory and we will rejoice forever. That's the marriage Supper of the Lamb. It's awesome. And, and then in 11 through 19, or 11 through 21, we see the return of Christ. We're going to come back to that. But then in 20, we see what's known as the millennial reign of Christ. How many of you have heard of that before? Okay, a few of you. All right. Um, in this passage, Satan is bound for a thousand years so that he can no longer deceive the nations. And true believers who are faithful to Christ, even unto death, and do not compromise, are raised to life, and they are set on thrones where they are to reign with Christ. Now, this is one of the most hotly debated passages in the book and in the entire Bible. Um, and I love what one guy said about it. He said, this is a thousand years of great peace that Christians like to fight about. And I thought that's a, that's a good way to summarize it. Now, there's three primary views of the millennial reign of Christ. There's amill, postmill, and premill. If you're wondering where I fit, um, you got to come see me afterwards. We don't have time to get into it today. You're like, oh, come on, right? Just come see me afterwards, okay? Because um, we want to focus on what we agree on. Um, we want to focus on, on the encouragement from this passage. But in 7 through 10 of 20, we see the final defeat of Satan. Satan is released from this pit. 
He gathers an army to try to attack Christ and his people one final time. And I just want you to think about, like, uh, actually, I want you to read it. Look at Revelation 20, verse 9. I love how this goes down. Think about this. Satan comes out of a pit, and he gets all these armies together. And obviously, this is apocalyptic literature, okay? But, like, he's, he's coming for the city, and we're going to take out Jesus, and we're going to take out his people. Like, like, how insane is evil? Like, who, who thinks they can take out the creator? But they're gathering up, right? It's this big thing. You think it's going to be this big army. And then in verse 9, it says, And they, Satan and his army, marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. I'm just like, well, that was short-lived, right? Like, and it's just an awesome reminder that God is so much more powerful than Satan. Like, sometimes we have this picture that it's just like back and forth. Oh, no, who's going to win? Like, no, Satan's on a leash right now, okay? And, and in a moment, God could just flick his fingers and he'd be gone. Why is he running rampant right now? We don't know for sure. There's some mystery there. Why, God, why isn't he just take him out already? Um, but we do know this, that God is in control, and, and that we don't have to worry about um, the powers of Satan. We should take him seriously. That's what this book is about. There is spiritual warfare in the world. And we shouldn't pretend like it's not there. But just know that God is in control. And one day, his final last attempt to take out God and fire comes down and consumes him. It's just pretty cool to think about. Um, next, he's tossed in the lake of fire um, forever, which is awesome. All right. So then in the end of chapter 20, we come to what's called the great white throne judgment. Um, here the dead are raised and judged for how they live their lives on earth. And books are opened. And verse 15 says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, obviously this is a sobering passage. A sobering question for all of us to consider is, is, is there evidence in my life that my name's in that book, the book of life? Like, is there evidence in my life that I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ? Because we're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is not alone. And when the Spirit of God indwells us and saves us, there's going to be evidence in our life. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. Do I have a love for Jesus? Do I have a desire to be with his people? That's what First John is written for. That, that we can know that we have eternal life. So the question for us to consider is, have I had a time where I've turned from my sins and trusted in Jesus? And is there evidence in my life that this is true? Okay, and then that's something that I always just want to put before you um, that we take it seriously. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, right? This is a serious matter. Now, that brings us to Revelation 19. So that's a survey. Um, if that was a lot, I'm sorry. That's kind of what happens when you're trying to cram 22 chapters into 10 sermons. Okay, but we're going to go to 11 through 21. We read it earlier, um, and I want to read it again because it's just such an awesome passage. So 11... It says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As I, as I was reading this this past week, like, 
This is what came out. Um, this is the kind of the emotion that came out. Wow, Jesus is a boss, right? Like, isn't Jesus awesome? Like, sometimes we have this picture of, like, this, like, calm Jesus with the long flowing hair and the little lamb on his shoulder. And he's just kind of petting the lamb. And he's, like, this calm guy. But, like, this is Jesus, like, on a white horse with, like, fiery eyes and a sword. He's got a tattoo on his thigh and a robe dipped in blood. Like, this is for real. Like, so, so sometimes we need, to, we need to make sure that we have a, a real picture that Jesus is God, and, and he's God in the flesh. And when he came, yes, he was gentle and lowly. I mean, he was the one that, that took that woman caught in adultery, and he said, hey, who's there to condemn you? Remember that story? Like, he is gentle and lowly, but he's also this. And we shouldn't try to separate them. We should be in awe of that. That Jesus, and, and this is what's awesome. It says he's going to come, and he's going to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Like, this is why in the garden he was sweating drops of blood. Because he knew he was about to go face the wrath of God for, for the sins of his people. Like, this is serious stuff. So the one who is going to mete out this judgment is the one who first offered to take it for all who will repent and believe. That's an amazing reality. But the second thing that kind of stood out to me as I, as I kind of studied this, because I had the idea, like, oh, man, the return of Christ. Like, that's one of my favorite things to talk about. And it's going to be this awesome, encouraging message. But as I read it, I'm like, this is actually a lot of, like, judgment and death. Um, and, and that was kind of the next thing that stood out to me. And you'll see that in the next portion in 17. It says, then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. And he said, come, gather for the great supper of God. So before you had the marriage supper of the lamb with God's people um, feasting and celebrating. But now you've got this great supper of God. Well, what's this? Verse 18, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. This is pretty, pretty graphic. Verse 19, and I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, obviously, that's why I said the second thing that popped out to me was, yes, Jesus is awesome, but judgment is serious. That's what stood out to me. Like judgment is serious. And as much as I love to just enjoy a good time and, and always focus on the encouraging positive things, um, there are times when we have to deal with texts like this. And, and I want to I try for a moment as we walk through this is I want to give you three truths about Jesus' judgment here that I hope will be an encouragement to you. But, but the ultimate question for all of us to consider as we walk through this is, am I ready for Christ's return? Like, go back to me as a kid. Like, dad's coming home. Like, am I on the right side here? That's what we have to wrestle with. And, and the first truth that I realized as I was studying this is that Jesus judges in righteousness. When he comes to judge, he's going to do it in righteousness. Look at verse 11. The one sitting on it, on the horse, is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Think about how awesome it is for a moment that the one who rules the cosmos is faithful? Think about the one that has, who has all authority in heaven and on earth is true. Can you imagine a God that wasn't faithful? Can you imagine a God who changed or lied or didn't keep his promises? A God who just decided, you know what, you're not my child anymore. 
A God who just was upset one day randomly and flippant and arbitrary. Like, think about a God who wasn't faithful, who wasn't true. Sometimes we take that for granted, don't we? That God doesn't change. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we're struck by this graphic portrayal of judgment, we can remember that this is true. This is righteous. This is right. And as I mentioned earlier, this is meted out by the one who first took this judgment upon himself. Like, he's not going to pour a judgment out on people that he wasn't willing to first take and absorb for them. And, and besides his own character here, there's another truth that points to the righteousness of Jesus' judgment. Look at verse 12. <clears throat> it says, his eyes are like a flame of fire. <clears throat> Sorry. We saw in chapter 1 that this, this has the idea that Jesus sees through facades. Okay, so I want you to imagine you're in front of Jesus and you're doing something. Okay, maybe it's good. And, and yet he can see right through that action, right into your heart, and right into your inner motive of why you're doing it. So if I'm up here preaching right now um, to try to get um, applause from you or, or compliments from you, like Jesus sees that. Like he sees right to the heart, even if it looks good. Like that should kind of like shake us for a little bit. And it also, as I'm always saying, it also should, should just help us to not come in here um, with swagger, right? Acting like we have it all together. Acting like we're like big stuff. Like... Jesus knows that we're broken. Like he knows it and we don't have to put on a show. What is the gospel? The first realization of the gospel is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's why I always say, I'm just going to keep using it until I come up with a better illustration, that church is less like a job interview and more like an emergency room. In a job interview, we're all trying to look good. We're kind of comparing the guy next to me. Like, is he, am I going to get the job? Is he going to? But in a hospital, you're like, man, I thought I was bad, but look at that guy, right? Like, that's church. Like, we're coming here as broken sinners who need grace. And guess what? Jesus sees right through when we come in here acting like we're all, we're all fine, okay? And so we should, we should be raw with Jesus. We should be real with Jesus. But when it comes to judgment, this is what I was encouraged by. Jesus doesn't overlook anything. Je nothing is hidden from his gaze. He sees exactly what needs to be done. He has eyes like a flame of fire, and he judges accordingly. You've probably seen the statue of Lady Justice, and she's a statue that holds this pair of scales, and she's blindfolded. And, and the message of this is that justice, true justice, is blind. It doesn't treat some people differently than others based on who they are or what their social status is. And, and there's some truth to that because as broken sinners judging others, um, we unfortunately are biased a lot of times. And so, so in that sense, we understand the picture. But true justice, like ultimate justice, isn't just blind. True justice sees all and knows all and will judge accordingly. And that is Jesus here. That's what the eyes like a flame of fire mean. That, that he has intricate, perfect knowledge of the case before him that he's about to judge. And, and this is why in verse 18 it says that there's kings, there's captains, there's free men, there's slaves, there's small, there's great. And they're all being judged because it doesn't matter your social status. God is not a respecter of person. He's going to judge in righteousness. It's crazy when you start to study um, the, the court systems and, and the legal system in our, in our country and, and really start to find all the cases where, where people who were, who were charged guilty weren't actually guilty. And it starts to kind of get scary. Like people just sitting in jail for years and years and years over like something that actually they didn't do. And evidence comes out later to, to acquit them and, and they're free. But, but like this is what's awesome. We can know this. As, as graphic as this judgment is, it's going to be right. It's going to be righteous. Because the one who does this judgment is faithful and true. He, his eyes are like a flame of fire and he makes no mistakes. All right? But not only does he judge in righteousness, secondly, Jesus judges in authority. Look at verse 12. On his eyes 
are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. The many diadems or the crowns on Jesus' head represent his royal supremacy, his ultimate authority that he has in heaven and on earth. And the fact that no one knows his name, this is awesome. Um, in, in the ancient world, when you knew someone's name, there was a sense when it was written like this, that you had control over them, that you kind of you called the shots. Um, and the fact that no one knows his name here, it has the idea that no one has control over Jesus, um, that no one's pulling the strings or calling the shots. There's no one behind the curtain that's kind of funding his decisions. Like Jesus is, is the one with the authority. And to me, that's awesome. And he'll use this authority to judge with power. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This shows that when Jesus returns, he's not messing around. Right? He's coming in authority. He's coming in power. The first, time, the first time he came as the suffering lamb. And next time he's coming as a conquering lion. And we know that, that Jesus, when he judges with power and with authority, the authority that he has that no one else has, and we know that this means it's final. Which brings me to the final point. Jesus judges in finality. In verse 19, the beast and the false prophet were captured. And in 20, it says, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This finality of judgment is seen in even greater detail in chapter 20 in verse 10. It says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Here's the reality. When Jesus comes in righteousness and when he comes in authority and he issues his judgment, it's final. And that's why right now it's so important that we understand now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to accept the offer of the gospel. Okay, in Hebrews 9.27, it says it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. So when Jesus passes judgment on this final day, it's final. It's eternal. There's no going back. And, and this should lead us to a question. What is Jesus waiting for? Right, like, it's been 2,000 years since he promised to return. What's taking so long? Um, but this is actually, um, by uh, the Apostle Peter tells us that we should expect these questions. Um, and he says in 2 Peter 3, scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. There's people who are going to look at Christians and think, you believe that like, Jesus is going to come back and like, like you crazy. Like it's been 2000 years. You're still holding on to that. And Peter says, that's going to happen. And then in verse 8, he says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So it's only been two days since he left. Listen to this, though. This is what I want to highlight. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So why, like, why hasn't he come back yet? Because he's patient. Because he's long-suffering. Because he's gracious. Because he's kind. 
Because he wants us right now to understand that there is an offer of salvation. That we can turn from our sins right now and trust in Jesus and be saved. And, and, and so this is, this is really a, a gift that we're able to be here today. If you're listening and, and you're not a Christian, maybe you just kind of, this was in your stream and it popped on. Like, take a moment and realize, like, this is a gift. Like, Jesus hasn't returned yet because he's patient and he's kind and he's gracious. He's giving us another chance today to repent and believe. And so we shouldn't put it off any longer. When Jesus comes in judgment, it's righteous, it's authoritative, and it's final. And so here's the question that I want to leave you with today. The king is coming. Are you ready? The king is coming. Are you ready for his return? It's in the gospel that we find that we can be ready. And that's, that's what jumps out to us as we look at him who treads the winepress of the wrath of God the Almighty is the same one who first took that wrath upon himself. But in the gospel, this is the offer. Okay, and this is another thing, actually, I just want to highlight. The, the armies, verse 14, the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. As we look through Revelation, you know what we see? We see that God's people are given these white robes. And this is what's offered in the gospel. The Bible says that all of us are sinners. All of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us rebel against God every single day. We don't even keep our own standards, let alone God's. And so you can picture our lives as, as ones with dirty rags, with dirty robes over our shoulders. But Jesus came and Jesus lived the life that we could never live. It was a perfect life and, and he had a white robe. And at the end of his life, he took the sins of his people on himself and was crucified on a cross. And three days later, he rose again triumphantly. And, and here's the offer of the gospel. Jesus comes to you and your brokenness and your sin and your rebellion with your dirty rags and robes on. And he says, I'll trade you. <laughs> I'll take your dirty worn robe and I'll give you my white robe of righteousness. I'll absorb your sin. I'll take your sin and I'll give you my righteousness so that you can stand before God holy and justified, forgiven. Just think about that. And so when Jesus like judges us, his judgment is righteous because he paid for all of our sins. His judgment is authoritative because he has declared us righteous. His judgment is final because he's welcomed us into his family for all eternity. This is the good news of the gospel that we should rejoice in today. It's called the great exchange that Jesus would take our sin and give us his righteousness so that one day we don't have to fear this judgment. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an awesome reality. And so as we consider as Christians, if you're a true believer, Am I ready for the king's return? When it comes to judgment, we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear the wrath of God because Jesus absorbed it on our behalf. But if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, that offer is on the table for you. That robe of righteousness, he'll give you if you'll just believe. Like take that dirty robe off and cast it at Jesus' feet and, and take the robe of righteousness. And one day we're gonna be arrayed in fine linen, standing before him, worshiping him, for all eternity, because Jesus took our sin for us. And so I hope you're encouraged by this, you're challenged by this, and, and also you're, you're reminded of the fact that we need to share this with others. Like everybody that we know can hear this message, we can give them this message. They can trade their dirty robes for robes of righteousness from Jesus, and they can be ready and look forward to Jesus coming. Not in fear, but in eager anticipation. 
when Jesus comes to rescue us from this broken world and we're with him forever on the new heaven and the new earth. Are you ready for the king's return? Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Lord, I just want to thank you that it's okay not to be okay. That Jesus meets us where we are in our brokenness, in our sin. And he saves us if we'll believe. And Lord, I just pray that if there's anyone here who's never trusted you, that today they would trust you. And Lord, for those of us who are your children, who have been given those white robes, that we would rejoice. The king is coming. <laughs> He's coming to get us. You're not going to leave us here, Lord. You're, you're coming back. Lord, I just pray that we would, with rejoicing, with awe, with anticipation, we'd long for his arrival. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.